All right, so as we then walk with Christ, uh, Jesus says we're to be salt and light. And one of the simple ways, but powerful ways that we get to be salt and life in this community and in this culture is simply by the means of voting. And maybe you don't know, we think of voting in November, but we have actually a primary coming up and it involves some local folks. And have you ever been in the booth and then you're voting and you're like, I have no idea who all these people are. Ever been there? Yeah, I, I've been there and it's like, oh man, I wish I had some information. So I'm really grateful that there are some folks in our body who have gathered uh, information that helps us understand where people stand. So we don't endorse candidates here, but if you would like to not go in blind to a primary, but be salt and light out in our courtyard this morning, there's a lot of information from Florida family policy that will help us understand where our candidates stand and we can vote according to biblical values as salt and light. So if that would serve you, hope you'll stop by and grab that after the service this morning. All right, turn with me now to Nehemiah 6, if you would, please. Nehemiah chapter 6. If you're new with us, the reason we have all this pile of rubble up here is because a man named Nehemiah was living a thousand miles away from his ancestral roots of Jerusalem. And he got word that Jerusalem was in ruin and the people were distressed. The walls were broken down and the gates were burned. And as one who loved God and knew that Jerusalem was to reveal the glory of God, his heart was broken by the condition of Jerusalem. And so he began to pray, God, use me, help me to make a difference in restoring Jerusalem. And God answers his prayer. He makes the thousand mile trip back to Jerusalem and he begins to organize the rebuilding of the walls and the restoring of the gates in Jerusalem. And we have rubble up here as a reminder that we have brokenness in our world today. Things that rob God of his glory. We have the brokenness of those who are ruled by addiction. Whether it's alcohol, drug, pornography, work, lives being destroyed by addiction. We have brokenness on our world called vulnerable children, orphans, sex trafficking, uh, something that's just horrible and robs God of his glory. It's true in our world. And it breaks our heart. It's the rubble in our world. Uh, We have brokenness in our world called the unreached, the billions who have never heard the gospel. Now, all of this rubble has, like these, words written on them. And I didn't write them. You wrote them. We had a Sunday where you came forward, if you were here that Sunday, and wrote what breaks your heart. And we put it here as a reminder that we not grow callous to it or even casual about it, that that God would use us to minister to, to help, to serve those who are broken and burned in our world. Because it's easy to feel like it's just so broken, it's so big, what can I do? 
But Nehemiah represents an example that a man or a woman, a person who is willing to be used by God can be used greatly to help the broken and the burned. And so when we come to chapter six, the task is almost complete. We get an update in chapter six, verse one. Maybe you can look at it with me. It says here, verse one, now when it was reported to Samballot, Tobiah, to Geshem the Aaron, to the rest of our enemies, so there are surrounding nations watching what's happening to this restoration of Jerusalem, And here's what they see, that I had rebuilt the wall two and a half miles long, 39 feet high, eight feet wide. He's rebuilt it. That's amazing. And that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. So the walls have been restored. And then the, if you will, if you've ever hung a door, the the frames have been hung for the doors, but The doors aren't quite on yet, so there's still the breach of enemies could come through doors, and there's no way to close that up. But he is almost finished. If you like baseball, he is rounding third, heading home. Or if you're more a football guy, they're in the red zone. And they're about to finish what God had put in his heart. And because they're about to finish... There is one final last ditch, if you will, goal line stand. There's a catcher blocking the plate. And we're going to see, and I'll give you a little uh, spoiler alert. He finishes. He gets home. He scores. And what he's going to, what we're going to take from this is how you and I finish well. In other words, we don't just start something. We don't just write something on a rock and and go for what we see it through. Now, when I wrote the title, Finishing Well, because that's what's happening here in chapter 6, I thought, uh, that sounds like an old person's sermon, right? I asked some young guys, when I say finishing well, does that make you think of old people? And they're like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's like what you say when you're just the twilight years. But here's the reality. Is there any special sauce to finishing well? Or is finishing well simply living well to the very end? There's nothing new about finishing well. It's just that sometimes we can start well and do well, but not finish well, but there's new, there's no special extra, oh, now there's new truth that I need to finish well. No, it's the same truth about living well that sets us for finishing well. So young or old, chapter six became so rich in my study that though I had intended to do it in one, we're going to do it in two and we probably should have done it in three. Because If there's anything we need to know, it's how do we live our lives well? So that's what Nehemiah is going to reveal for us. So I hope you'll join in and look at what the scripture says. So there's the the update in, in progress, almost done. Then Samballot and Geshem sent a message to me saying... So they send, as leaders, they send to Nehemiah, the leader who's the governor of Jerusalem, come, let us meet together at Teraphim in the plan, in the plain of Ono. 
but they were planning to do what? To harm me. So I sent messages them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner and I answered them in the same way. So what's happening? They see progress is been amazing. He's about finished. There's going to be no breach once the doors are up. So they try to distract him by calling a meeting. And you can understand he is the governor. They are leaders. It's like, let's have a leadership summit. Let's come together. And he says, no. For what reason? Why would I leave this great work. Don't miss this. If you, me, if we are going to live well to the very end, we have to be, have clarity and commitment to my purpose in life. It's his purpose. It's his clarity and his commitment to his purpose that causes him to say, hey, uh, nothing wrong with the leadership summit except if I went to it, I couldn't be here doing what God has called me to do. I don't think, quite frankly, you could find a more important thing than life than your purpose. Knowing what your purpose in life is for. It's what defines Nehemiah. So, what's your purpose in life? There's a a general purpose for all of us and then a specific purpose for each of us. Did you hear that? There's a general purpose for everyone, a specific purpose for each one. And it's all wrapped up in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Just stop there and we'll finish the verse. But our fundamental, general, if you will, core purpose for each and every person is to be in relationship with God. To be his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You were made by God. You were made in the image of God. And you were made for relationship with God. Now, you may have a relationship with God, or you may not have a relationship with God, but everyone has been made for a relationship with God. And quite frankly, for us to live well, we have to understand I can never live well as God has made me to live until I'm restored to relationship with him. In other words, look at it this way. You and I were made to live by God, for God, with God, under God. That's the way God created Adam and Eve. That's why he created humanity, to live like this with him. Sin destroyed it. Sin broke the relationship. And you and I, 
cannot live in relationship with God unless that sin is addressed. And what Jack tell us? I can never be good enough. No matter how good I live from this day forward, two things are true. I'll never be perfect. And even if I could be, which I can't, but even if I could be, what would that do for my past? The only way I can be restored to my created purpose, relationship with God, is for someone to take the sin away that I can't deal with, which is why the scripture says God sent his son who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become, watch, you watching? The righteousness of God in Christ. The only way you and I can live as we were made to live is to be restored to relationship with God. You can look for life in every other thing imaginable. You can just look around and see where people try to find life. But you'll never find life anywhere else except watch right here. Because you were made for relationship with God. But it didn't stop there. Go back to the verse. We were we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See, it's not our good works that restore us to right relationship with God. It's what Jesus did on the cross. But as restored person, once you have found your created purpose, a relationship with God, now there's a next step. What works has God saved me for? What good works has God created uniquely for each of us? See, what God made me for in my relationship with him is different than what God made you for. That's the beauty of how we are all different in the body of Christ. That we are not only all made for relationship with God, we are made to accomplish unique works of God. And I have to get that. Make sure you go back and look there at Ephesians 2.10 and see that it is works that he created for us beforehand. He made them, which is why it's so unhelpful when I look around and I compare what I'm doing to what someone else is doing. You ever do that? You think, oh, well, they're doing that. Maybe I should do that. And we tend to copy. It's a copycat world. And somebody says, well, maybe I should do that. Well, they're awesome. I should be. I should do that. No. Well, what's great is Jesus has made a way for you to be restored, every single one of us to be restored to right relationship with him. When we are restored to right relationship, there are unique works that God has created each of us for. Which is why <laughs> we're broken about different things. It's not that some things are right up here and some things are wrong. They reflect unique works that God would put in your heart. There are things that I see up here that I go, wow, I'm glad that people are broken by that and want to make a difference there because I see that, but I'm not broken by that or I see that and I don't sense that God has called me to do anything about that. But that doesn't change that he has called me to do something about what's broken in this world. 
So when I was a first-year student in college, you can think back, some of you, you probably were like me trying to figure out, what do I want to do with my life? Because I was in right relationship with God, that meant, what do I believe God wants me to do with my life? Not what do I want to do, but what do I think God has made me to do? And up until that point, the best thing I had was go to Penn State and be an electrical engineer. That might seem funny to you now. seems funny to me now. But he made clear as I sought him that his purpose in my life, the good works he had prepared for me, didn't have anything to do with that. The good works prepared for me were that I would be a teacher of this book. And he made that clear to me. And it's defined what I've said yes to and what I've said no to since that day. Don't try to copy that. Don't compare what you're doing to what I'm doing. Ask yourself, are you doing what God has made you to do? I love that my oldest son, he was at the same place that I was my first year in college. He was there, and he came to the conclusion completely different. Not that he would go into occupational ministry, but I remember he called me and he said, Dad, I believe God has made me to live out my faith in a dark world, not a Christian world. So he's in sales. <laughs> That's just a little joke. That's just a little joke. I will always remember one of our elders, businessman being invited to go to another city for a promotion, a greater pay, pay greater position, and him very clearly going, ah, it's, it's easy. God's called me here. God's made me a part of this body. Why would I go somewhere else? <clears throat> my career doesn't drive my life. God's purposes drive my life. And God's purposes have me here. I don't think they were trying to harm him in another city. It's not like Sam Ballot wanted to harm it, it was just like, if I go there, I'll be distracted from what I know God has called me to do. You see the value of having clarity and commitment to what God has made you to be. If you're not sure, ask him. I really believe if you seek the Lord, he will allow you to find him. Ask the Lord. Make it your goal to say, Lord, what is it that you have uniquely... I, I, I need to stop looking around and saying, oh, that's awesome. Maybe I should do that. Oh, maybe I should do that. Maybe you should do that. Don't look around. Look up. I don't mean literally, but you understand. Look to the Lord and say, Lord, what have you uniquely made me to do? And then don't get distracted. One of the things that I find really uh, unique about this passage is, is this. Why do, they, why do they want Nehemiah to come? What did it say? To do what? To harm him. Does he know it? Yes. Yeah, so when I'm reading the text, maybe you didn't think this, but when I was reading the text, when it said uh, they wanted to harm me, I thought he would go. No, you want to harm me. <laughs> 
No, if I go there, you harm me, I'll stay here. But that's not what he says. Did you notice that? What he says is not, oh, I don't want to be harmed. What he says is, why or how would I leave this great work, the the work that, that God has called me to? Why doesn't he say, no, I'm not doing, I'm not going to do that because that would harm me. I think for this reason, and this might take a while for you to process, but capture. What Nehemiah reflects is this, is that I cannot be purpose-driven, understanding what God has called me to do and to do that. I can't be committed to that, God's purpose in my life, if I am preservation-driven with my life. You tracking? If he says, no, I'm not going to come because you want to harm me, then what drives his life? Safety. Uh, Whatever preserves my life. And folks, I cannot be purpose-driven if I'm preservation-driven because sometimes my purpose, God's purpose in my life will take me beyond safety. Jesus could never have been purpose-driven if he had been preservation-driven, correct? God had called him to take the sin of all the world upon himself, which meant he had to die. He could not be purpose-driven if he was preservation-driven. As the book of Acts opens up, the apostles, Peter and John, were told, if you keep preaching, it's going to go badly for you. And they simply said, we must obey God rather than men. They were purpose-driven, not preservation-driven. And think bigger than just preserving life and death. Think, I cannot be purpose-driven if I am driven to preserve my, what is it, my lifestyle. Because sometimes God's purposes are going to cause me to sacrifice my lifestyle. I cannot be purpose-driven if I am preservation of my wealth-driven. Because sometimes God's purposes are going to cause me to give away stuff that I wanted for myself. I cannot be purpose-driven if I am driven by a preservation of peace. Because sometimes obeying the Lord is going to rock the boat. You see it? I think it's powerfully profound in Nehemiah's life that he didn't say, I'm not going because you intend to harm me. Because that was not the greatest driving force in his life. I'm not going because if I did, I would be abandoning God's purpose. And God's purpose is what drives me, not my preservation. This, I hope... I see those wheels spinning. I hope you're asking yourself this question. Am I preservation-driven or purpose-driven? And again, don't think life and death, because most of us aren't there. I mean the things that are precious to us. Am I purpose-driven or preservation to the things that are precious to me driven? And the answer is very easily revealed by simply looking at, what do I say yes and no to? What I say yes and no to. Uh, Sometimes we say it around here, we vote with our feet. (laughs) What we say yes to, where we go to, what we say no to, what we don't go to, 
reveals really what is driving our lives. And it can't be purpose and preservation at the same time, sometimes. So, do you know your purpose? Yes, relationship with God. Do you know your unique purpose? If not, ask the Lord. If so, don't be distracted. The large church in Pennsylvania, actually, that I grew up with in uh, a number of years back, come down and say, hey, we want you to come and join our team. And I was like, no, I love where I'm at. The chapel. No, we want you to come. It'll be awesome. And, and they laid. They, I said, don't come. They came. <clears throat> Took me to lunch. And I was like, well, if you're going to buy me lunch, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> they go through the job description. I'll never forget my wife saying, taking the job description, putting her hand on it, and sliding it back across the table saying, I don't see my husband anywhere in that job description. Because actually she had great clarity about God's unique purpose in my life. And it was like, there is no reason to even entertain this. Because this would be a, an abandoning, a taking away, a, a going to something not necessarily bad. It wasn't bad. See, that's the thing. It's not bad. It's just not purpose-driven. So I hope that helps you live well. Next, then Samballot, verse 5, then Samballot sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time. So four times didn't work. He's given it a fifth try with a new element. The fifth time with an open letter in his hand. You know what, what an open letter is? Uh, you've maybe seen an, an open letter to the editor. It's, it's a letter that everyone can be that everyone can see, can read. It's meant to be declared publicly, not privately. He sends a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. What's it say? It is reported among the nations, and Gajmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. What's he saying? <laughs> I'm going to publicly proclaim that you are rebelling. And it's going to get to the king. So... Come now, come now, let us take counsel together. He's simply trying to blackmail him, if you will, of saying, if you don't come and meet and therefore stop building, I'm going to spread lies about you. Then I sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. So, what's happening here? Is Nehemiah rebuilding the walls? Yes. Is he a new leader in Jerusalem? Yes. Could it look like new leader with new walls and new movement and new vision equals rebellion? Could it look that way? Yes. Yes, this wasn't some outlandish lie. This was simply a matter of 
taking some true things and making them look like they represented something that could be used against him. It's a plausible lie. You ever told a plausible lie? You didn't really think you were lying. Okay, Wednesday night, I'm with my oldest granddaughter. She's, we're celebrating her first day of school. And I'm in shorts, and we had been in North Carolina last week hiking, and I had a pretty significant gash right here above my knee on my leg. And so she comes up and she says, Papa, what happened? And I said, I was in North Carolina, and there's bears in North Carolina. <laughs> True? Absolutely true. I was in North Carolina, and there are bears in North Carolina. True? Yeah, I, I tried that Monday on one of our staff members, and they're like, Pfft. But my granddaughter goes, Papa, are you telling the truth? <laughs> See, that... Mm, Why, why was the staff member clear and my five-year-old not clear? Maturity. Maturity, right? That's why we don't hire five-year-olds here. <laughs> the, my point is this. If you and I are going to live well, uh, we're going to have to learn to reject believable, plausible lies. Things that, that start with truth, but end up not being true. It, and they're always new ones. They're plausible because they have an element of truth to them. They're built on a foundation of truth, but they communicate a false conclusion. So if we're gonna live well and finish well, therefore, in our current day, here are some. Is it true that God is love and Jesus said, don't judge? True? So therefore, who are we to say things like marriage is between a man and a woman and God made a male and God made a female? See what I just did? Told you the truth. And then told you something that seems believable based on that truth. But I used it to twist. Is it, is it true that, that God wants us to experience joy? Yes. So if my spouse is not bringing me joy, then certainly God would understand if I got a new one. Now you laugh? I've been told that many, many times. God wants me to be happy, and I'm not happy in this relationship. He understands why I'm going to end it and find a new one. Now, you go, well, I don't believe those lies. Maybe you have maturity. Or maybe those lies have caused you to struggle. Lack of maturity. The only way you and I are ever 
going to be able to do what Nehemiah did and reject believable lies is if we become more and more saturated in truth. Increasingly, and this, this will be something that you're going to hear in the coming months and next couple of years, increasingly, we find people simply don't read their Bible anymore. It's like old-fashioned, just daily commitment to reading their Bible. I'm going to ask you if that's what, you sleep, what you've slipped into, of not reading your Bible on a regular basis, that you might, in the hopes of living well by being able to reject believable lies. See, sometimes we just, we stop reading our Bible because it's like, what's the point? Here's the point, that you would know truth so that knowing truth, you'd be able to identify lies, believable ones, and not be fooled by that. If you're not sure, then just, Today's the 21st. Just read Proverbs 21 today and read Proverbs 22 tomorrow. If you're not sure where to start, just pick the day of the week and then go to the Psalms or Proverbs. Psalms, you'll hear a person talk about their relationship with the Lord in real life. Proverbs, you'll get wisdom for life. Now don't, you don't have to stop, but that's an easy place to start. And that's not a problem. There's been plenty of times in my life where I've been like, I'm not sure where I, what I want to read today. And so I'll just go, oh, what's today? And then I'll read that proverb. And I, I never regret it. If we're going to live well, we have to know truth so that we can reject believable lies. So here's what was happening. Why did he send this open letter? Nehemiah identifies it. He says, for all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. You see what's happening? If we can distract them, it won't be done. If we can spread lies about them that will be believed, the work won't get done. And if we can frighten them or discourage them, it won't be done. Pretty simple, but super helpful to me. If I'm going to live well and therefore finish well, you have to learn not to allow fear or discouragement to cause me to shrink back. Because, wow, are they powerful feelings that cause every single one of us to shrink back. Fear and discouragement. And in this situation, Nehemiah connects the two by saying, fear will lead to discouragement. Sometimes discouragement leads to fear. The net result is always the same. We, we don't step into our purpose. We shrink back from it. By a show of hands, how many of you can say there's a time where fear or discouragement calls you to shrink back from doing you something you knew you shouldn't? Yeah, I, I could put my 10 toes into this as well. These are real issues in, in my life. Fear and discouragement. So much so that sometimes I wonder, 
Because I see this and I know my own heart. I wonder how many times has the gospel not been shared in this community? Because there was a, a step forward, but you or I shrank back because we were afraid. Afraid of what they think. Or we were discouraged because other people haven't been responsive. Again, I, I, we won't do this with every time, but I think every one of us could, who are in relationship with God could raise our hand and go, there was a time I had to speak up and either fear or discouragement caused me to shrink back. Yes? How many times have I have thought I had to give in this way and then fear or discouragement caused me to shrink back? Either to not give or to give less been true for me. I tell myself things like, well, I gave to this person before and they didn't seem that appreciative. Uh, that was kind of discouraging. I don't think I'm going to give. As if I was giving for a, last week, Matthew 6, as if I was giving to be noticed, to be appreciated versus in response to the Lord. Fear and discouragement are real in our life. So I don't need to convince you of that. You're going, I know, I know, I know. So let's just go home guilty. (laughs) No, let's go home helped. Fear and discouragement are real, but they don't have, they don't have to cause us to shrink back. They can be real, but still not cause us to shrink back. That was first for me. I never thought I could step forward as long as I experienced fear. That the only way to step forward was to get rid of fear. Then I could step. But I don't see that at all happening in in Nehemiah. They are trying to frighten us thinking they will become discouraged with the work. I think Nehemiah is saying this because when he hears they want to harm me, he's a normal guy. When people want to harm you, That can cause you fear. Right? We already saw back in chapter 4, they were discouraged. But what's so powerful about Nehemiah, which is why I was like, we just can't run past this, is that he experienced what we experienced, but didn't step back. He stepped forward. How do I do that? Cry to God to help so that fear and discouragement aren't my masters. Cry to God for help so that fear and discouragement are not my masters. See, I thought they have to be absent, but they don't have to be absent They just can't be my master. Let me say an extended sentence here. Track with me. I often don't do the things that I don't do because I see the people who do them and think they don't feel what I feel. Or they wouldn't do it. But actually... I have every reason to believe from the text that that Nehemiah felt what I feel. 
but didn't shrink back. You see it again? They'll be discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Not, oh God, take my fear away. Because if my fear is gone, then I'll go. But God, strengthen my hands. That's why I say, cry to God for help so that fear and discouragement don't cause me to shrink back. They're not my masters. I, I'm, I used to be surprised. Now I'm used to it. The number of people I meet at the chapel who have trusted faith, in, put faith in Jesus, but never been publicly baptized as a believer. And number one reason. I'm scared to stand up and give the testimony. And so what I usually get is, can we do it at the beach? Because there's not many people at the beach. (laughs) I understand. I understand. I understand fear. Wanting you not to speak up. You don't have to wait until your fear is going to speak up. Oh, God. Strengthen my hands so that even though I am afraid, (laughs) I don't shrink back, I step forward. I told you my my first year in college, uh, Lord clarified his purpose in my life. The, The horrible thing about that was this, deathly afraid to stand up in front of people which is very hard to fulfill my purpose. <laughs> Teach the Bible, but not stand up in front of people. Very difficult. So what do you do with that? Well, here's what I did. I, uh, I'll come back to that. I hung this over my desk for the next three years. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, it wasn't, God, if you'll take away the fear, then I can do it. It's, do not fear. Don't let fear master you. Don't let fear rule you. Now, I'm telling you my story, but don't don't copy my story. Don't compare your story to my story. Just... What is it that fear causes you to shrink back from? How many times has sin gone unchecked in a friend's life because fear of confronting sin causes you to shrink back instead of stepping in? How many people are lonely on your street because fears cause you to shrink back instead of going knocking on a door? See, fear impacts us on a daily basis. And I simply ask the Lord that the truth would rule not what I fear, not what I feel. Fear and anxiousness are still realities in my life. Oh, for the day that they are completely gone. (laughs) They're still realities. I'll show you in a moment, lessening realities, but still realities. 
Praise the Lord. And this can be your story. (laughs) They are less masters in my life. And they can be less masters in your life as well. And in fact, if we're going to live well, finish well, the goal is not to get rid of your fear. It's to get rid of the mastery of it in your life. And I've used fear as the primary word because that's me. Discouragement might be your primary word. So as I learn not to step back but to step in in spite of what I fear, then then here's what I hope. That I would experience God's help repeatedly so that fear and discouragement become strangers, not masters, strangers. They're not complete strangers yet, but that's the goal. You see what I'm saying? They move from masters in my life to acquaintances, to strangers. When? When I repeatedly experience God's help because I do the first. I cry out. This is the process. Not take it away, Lord. In spite of it, help me to step in. And as you help me, masters become acquaintances and then strangers. I want to live well. I want you to live well. Know your purpose. Spot lies. Don't let fear and discouragement rule your life. Would you bow with me? I want to pray for us. And then after I pray, we're going to have a closing song, but it's not for us to sing. Together, it's going to be sung over us. Father in heaven, As we pause in this moment, I would ask that your Holy Spirit would answer the cries of those who are seeking discern what their unique purpose in life is, what you have created them for. Lord, I pray that any who are not yet in relationship with you you would be knocking vigorously on the door of their heart. They might respond to you as admission of sin and putting faith in you this morning. Would you give an increasing hunger and thirst for your word that we would not avoid it tomorrow or Tuesday, Wednesday. We'd be hungry for it and drink it up that we would experience you, the God who is with us, the God who is for us, the God who has given his son that we might have life eternal and life abundant. Lord, would you bless us and shine your face upon us. Say
tell you from experience, I've experienced that peace of the Lord many times when someone has just one-on-one prayed with me through the discouragement, through the fear, through the sorrow, through the hardship, whatever that may be. So if that's you today and you'd like someone to pray with you specifically, we have men and women um, between the auditoriums. If you're in the south, you go out to your right. Um, in the north, we're straight back. Um, there are men and women there who are there to pray with you. So I hope you would do that. You would experience the peace and the blessing of God on you nearness of him who hears. So if we can do that for you as a gift, please uh, don't leave without doing that. So glad that you were here and I pray that you have a blessed rest of the day. Thank you. We'll see you next time.